Happy Tuesday, everybody. Good afternoon. Glad you're here. Yeah. <laughs> Gospel of John today. Palm Sunday today. Yes, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem in triumph today because we're wow. in John 12, 12. Wow. So, beautiful day, sunny out there, warmer. Yes, it is. Still not quite warm enough to sit on a patio somewhere. No, you're looking forward to that day, aren't I am. you? Yeah, I am. Yeah. I even bought us a little heater for outside. Nothing fancy. Not, not not one of the big propane ones, but I bought us a little electric heater, outdoor heater, so we could sit on our own patio. And we've used it a couple we've of times. We've used it a couple yeah. times. Yeah, it's just nice. You have sometimes. to have just the right conditions, though, you do. I think. It can't, can't be, be too windy. windy. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm afraid the whole heater might fall over on the Yeah, and it just, well, they, it just can't keep up with the cold yes. air blowing in. It's but true. It's true. Yeah, anyway, the heat's it takes the edge out. off. It takes it the edge off. It does. But, yes? you know, it's, it's going to get there. And we sit out there, and we, sometimes we put some cowboy tunes on, don't we? We do. That we would surprise. Do. I guess that would surprise people. Yes, we, we do. We, we get it. We get recommended tunes by Fair, uh, Lauren, by our uh, uh, sister-in-law sister in Atlanta, Stephanie, and other people, and yeah. So we like them all. So we like to sit out there and kind of roam around our playlists yes. and stuff. Yes, we used to just sit out there and listen to '60s, '70s, and '80s. Yeah. Yeah. But now we've now we're branching out. We're branching out. <laughs> so if so, you have any like cool, fun songs that are country songs that like you love, it's got a good beat. Um, send you it mean to us. you mean fun like buy me a boat? Yeah, like buy me a boat <laughs> or one margarita, two margarita or fancy like any of those. Yeah. We just think they're super fun. So yeah. anyway, you know what? This is fun. This is fun. Well, we're about to do Big this. Fun. Yes. Yeah. This is fun. <laughs> So, all right, I'm going to open us up with prayer. How about that? Please do. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, here it is Tuesday, and we are returning to the Gospel of John. And we pray, as we do whenever we gather like this, um, to that your Holy Spirit would open up these pages for us and help us to hear John well. He tells the story in his way. He paints his own portrait of Jesus and and help us to really to really pay attention to what John is telling us about Jesus um, so that we can come to know Jesus better, so that we can come to understand what you um, have accomplished, are accomplishing, will accomplish in this world to to reconcile us to you. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, honey. Okay, honey, Patty. Back over on my side. Hey, it's warm enough today. We don't need little heaters going. No, we don't. Isn't that grand? Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to center myself here, have the cameraman move the camera just a little bit. All right, so here is where we are. We are in John chapter 12, verse 12. That's easy. So let me just, just provide just a little bit of context for what came before um, in the opening of John of chapter 12 in verses 1 to 11. There's really two things that happen. One is Mary... Come, this is Mary of Bethany, Jesus' friend, comes in and it basically anoints Jesus for burial. She comes in with the jar, with the, with the ointment, and you know, and she, she, she uh, puts it on Jesus' feet and his hair, and she is, she's anointing him for burial. Now, we could talk about how many people really get that. Do they really comprehend what's happening? But that is what's happening. 
And then we're told that because of what Jesus did, um, what God did in raising Lazarus, um, bringing him back from the dead, um, the, a lot of people are flocking to Jesus. And so the authorities, the Jewish leaders, are more determined than ever to get rid of him. And then we come, then the next day, so the anointing in Bethany where Jesus is staying happens on Saturday. So the next day, Jesus is going to ride in to Jerusalem in triumph. But before we get there, let me just put a little context around that. There are three major festivals, and we need to know these three major festivals. They are they're just so important because they just swirl all around the Gospels in the Old Testament. Three major Jewish festivals, which all Jewish men were expected to attend. If they could at all be there, they had to be there. The first in the springtime is Passover. The second in early summer is Pentecost. So it's during that festival that the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection with a big throng of people from all over, the throng of Jews from all over the place who were there for Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends on the room. Then in the fall, there is the festival of booths or tabernacles that, that remembers and celebrates their nomadic existence. And it became a festival of lies of lights, a lot of lights associated with, with tabernacles. And earlier in John's Gospel, um, we encountered Jesus during the festival of, of tabernacles. But here, right now, in John 12, we are in the spring. So we are here in John's Gospel at the time of Passover. Now, Passover festival, like the other two, um, filled up Jerusalem with people. People came from all over. Jews came from all over from, for Passover. So, whereas the normal population of Jerusalem might be, say, 50 or 60,000 people, during Passover it might swell to 200,000. And for the Romans, that presented a problem, right? Because the Romans were in charge. The Romans wanted the peace kept. And when you take 200,000 Jews, who many of whom ground their teeth together um, at the thought of this Roman rule, it was like a bit like a tinderbox. And then on top of it, the meaning of Passover was always like about to light a flame um, because Passover is a festival that celebrates what? It remembers what? It recreates what? The Exodus. Freedom from slavery under Pharaoh. And it's not a very hard thing to substitute Caesar for Pharaoh or the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate at the time, for, for Pharaoh. So, of course, a festival devoted to freedom and to liberation um, is when you've lived under foreign oppression for hundreds of years, that is going to touch something in a lot of people's hearts. And it's no surprise then that Passover was a time when people, um, when there would be riots. Uh, we know 
from other sources, principally Josephus, that there were times in the late 20s and onward where the Roman troops had to enter the temple courts. They would sometimes do so on horseback. People would be killed um, as the Romans tried to keep the peace during Passover. So don't think of it as some gentle, calm, peaceful time. It wasn't. But you see, to, not to look too far ahead, but Jesus is going to ride in as a Messiah of peace. He is going to ride in as a Messiah, but he is not going to ride in as a Messiah that people expected him to be. That's a key, that's a key piece of, of what is going to that of what is going to happen here. So um, I've, I've brought a few slides, so let's use those before we get into the passage. Um, so I need to click this. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's the map. Jesus is going to, he's staying in Bethany, which is just southeast at the, sort of at the bottom end of the Mount of Olives. Like I said, a little what would we call it today? Southeastern suburb of Jerusalem, a couple of miles. So he is going to come in from the east, not just because he's staying in Bethany, but because that is the most important direction. That is the direction the temple faced. Okay, here's, a, here's the model in Jerusalem. The temple proper, that's the big tall structure in the center there, that faced eastward. So you and I, when we're looking at this photo, we are standing on the Mount of Olives and we are looking westward in the far distance, an hour away or more is the Mediterranean. We are looking westward and there is the Temple Mount, um, this whole gigantic project built by, um, started by Herod the Great, still under construction here. Um, we're probably, let's just say 30 years after um, uh, Herod's death. It's still under construction. And Jesus entered through a gate on that side. Now, let me just say, the scholars don't really agree about exactly how all this was constructed. The model keepers, the model makers, do not have a causeway, a bridge, across the valley there. There's a valley there called the Kidron Valley. Down at the bottom of that valley sits the Garden of Gethsemane. But some scholars think so. What think there was a causeway there, leading across from from the foot of Mount the Mount of Olives, across over to the city in order to ease passage in, and then you would enter into a street structure that operated really below the level of the um, temple proper. Okay and in which you could make your way into the city and around the city. So Jesus, but Jesus is going to enter that gate, okay, through that gate on Sunday, the day after his anointing. Now, a second thing, just in the way of background, that everybody there would know, but we maybe don't. When, if, let's just say Caesar were to visit Jerusalem, he would be expected to be welcomed into the city through one of the most through the most important city gate. He would be expected to meet to be met outside the gate, brought into the city by the city fathers or whatever, and it would be a way of for this city in the Roman Empire to acknowledge 
who was in charge. Um, if a, in, after a, a conqueror took over a city, they would be met outside the city walls by the city elders and escorted into the city. I remember Patty and I were watching a television show once where, this is from the middle um, time of the Renaissance, Florence had been captured by, I don't know, one of the fighting families in Italy. Florence had been captured, I think by the King of France. Anyway, so the King of France is in the show, is met outside the city gate. The spears are all lowered and they bring him in in triumph, right? It's called. It was called apentesis. It is. It, it it is how it is. Just how it was done. And when Jesus is escorted into the city, coming in through that gate by the crowd, however big it was, by the crowd, it Jesus is brought in as in triumph, as an arriving king. Okay. All right. So that's enough background, I think. We can probably plunge in. One other little aside. You know, there are there's a Palm Sunday story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four. None of them have all of the elements of what happens that morning. For example, we call it Palm Sunday, right? John is the only account that has palms. Interesting, isn't that? Yeah, it is. Yes, yes. So you really, which is, that, that's cool. You know, no, nobody's going to ha have every detail. And, um, but let, let's start then at chapter 12, verse 12, after I ask my lovely wife if there are any questions nope. out there or that you have, Patty. No. Nope. You ready to go? I am ready okay. to go. Okay, that means the glasses go on. The keys have to be moved. I find my glasses. All right, 1212 in the Gospel of John. The next day. So we're on a, uh, probably on Sunday, okay? The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. From where? From Bethany. That's where he was the night before. Jerusalem is so packed with people that that most, many, many folk have to stay outside the city. There's not room inside the city walls for 200,000 people. And and what had, I, I would bet you a fair amount of money that Jesus' practice over the years when he has come to Jerusalem for these festivals has been to stay with um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So, this great crowd heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him. So let's talk about palm branches for a minute. Palm branches really only emerge in the old... They don't really even emerge in the Old Testament as, like the, as, a, as a thing. They emerged during the Maccabean Revolt, which was about 200 years before this Palm Sunday, when the Jews were, had been so um, oppressed by Antiochus Epiphanes that they rose in revolt, and shocking, shockingly, they were successful. And the leader of the Maccabees, the leader of this rebellion, rode into Jerusalem uh, in triumph. 
and they waved palm branches at him. And it's, it's accounted for in several places in the book of the Maccabees, which is one of the books of the Apocrypha. It's a book of history that tells the story of the Maccabees and the revolt and stuff. So since that time, 200 years, that's a long time actually, right? For 200 years, the palm branches had increasingly become a symbol of liberation, a national symbol. Um, when Jews rise up and revolt against Rome about 40 years after the events we're reading about here, they mint some coins and guess what they put on the coins? palm branches. So palm branches here represent liberation. They represent freedom. They represent the nation of Israel. And they are like a um, <laughs> it's expressing their desire for um, freedom from Caesar. That's basically it. They've been, you know, the Romans are the latest oppressors. The Romans are the latest pagans in charge. The Romans are the latest jail keepers, as it were. And so the palm branches, even themselves, are, are focused on this theme of freedom and liberation. So they took palm branches in verse 13. They went out to meet Jesus, and they were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, Hosanna is, we encounter it in the Old Testament. It means basically, save us. By the time of Jesus, it had basically become a word of praise and acclamation. But this little section of John and what the crowds do calls upon Psalm 118. So let's turn to that. We're going to turn to Psalm 118, verse 25. And when I say we, I mean we. Psalm 118, verse 25. So, I'll give you another second to get there. I'll take a sip of my water. I saw an interesting comment. Yes. Okay. Verse 25, Psalm 118. Yahweh, Lord, Hosanna. That's what it is. Okay, it is the name of God, Yahweh, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Hosanna, wait. <laughs> Yahweh, save us. Hosanna. Yahweh, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So, so Psalm 118 is the psalm of about... Um, an appeal to God to do what? To rescue Israel. For, I think, a person just on the street in Jerusalem 
in 30 AD, which is when this Jesus is writing in a triumph, rescue from what? Rescue from whom? Well, who would it be? It would be the Romans, of course. So it's a messianic hope. It's a hope for a rescuer. Yahweh, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who's the he? The he is the Messiah. Who's going to save them, rescue them. Rescue them from from uh, pagan oppression. As I've said many times, a good way to understand the job description of the Messiah in the mind of many first century Jews is, is a job description that has two parts. The first part is to get rid of the pagan oppressors, to get rid of the Romans. Second part, to clean up the temple and get rid of the corrupt priests. That's what the people wanted. That's what they believed the Messiah would do. This person, not God, this person whom God would raise up to undertake this task and lead Israel and triumph against their oppressors and uh, to clean up God's temple and so forth. So, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The King of Israel. The crowd understands that what Jesus is doing, what is happening that day, is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem in triumph. You know stories have been circulating about him. He's being welcomed as the King of Israel, the Anointed One of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. That's what's happening. That's what the procession is about. That's what the triumphal entry is about. And in verse 14, we're just simply told that Jesus found a young donkey. We don't get the longer story that we do in the synoptics. Here we just says Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Okay? As it is written, another messianic passage from Zechariah. Which we'll, which we'll look at in just a second. Here John writes, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Well, that's kind of funny, actually, if you stop and you think about it. Because I just said, you know, what would happen if Caesar arrived in Jerusalem for a visit or somebody arrived as the conqueror of Jerusalem? Do you think that conqueror Caesar would ride in on to town on a donkey? Don't think so. <laughs> Don't think so, no. That conqueror would ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. Some big horse with full horse armor and full horse regalia. And the emperor or Caesar, whoever was coming to take possession of this city, would, ride, would have his full regalia on. But that's not Jesus. He's dressed in a tunic, a cloak probably, riding on a donkey. He isn't riding as a, as a Messiah who's bringing war, peace, violence. No, he's a Messiah who's arriving in peace, riding a donkey. A donkey. So turn to Zechariah. We're going to get a little bit of Old Testament stuff today. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9 verse 
9. It's just such, such a famous passage used so much by the gospel writers. Chapter 9, chapter 9 of Zechariah, verse 9. Now, Zechariah is a prophet who worked 400 years before Jesus, let's say. Okay? And he brings this surprising message about the coming of Israel's king. At a time when they didn't have a king. They were under the thumb of the of the Persians at that time. And here's chapter verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, not on a war horse, not in armor and regalia, but this very surprising Messiah. This very surprising king, lowly and riding on a donkey. God's king, lowly and riding on a donkey? That's Jesus, right? in this fulfillment, really, I think, of Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 9. And he is upsetting people's expectations. And you might say to me, well, hadn't they read Zechariah there? Didn't they know? People, people, we still do. I mean, we can, we want what we want. We expect what we expect. They've been under the thumb of the Romans for a long time, and a lot of Jews have died under the thumb of the Romans. Josephus tells us that when Jesus was about 10 years old, there were a couple of thousand Jews crucified by the Romans on the roads of Galilee to put down a tax revolt that began in Sepphoris. So imagine, they're not looking for somebody arriving on a cult. I'll just tell you, they, they, they may not know what to make of Zechariah right there, but they want a Messiah who's going to arrive with great power <laughs> and kick out the dang Romans. But Jesus rides in on this young donkey, and they were reminded then of the passage from Zechariah. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. You notice how in the beginning of verse 15, the words have been changed. In Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. But here, it says, Do not be afraid. So why the word change? Why the word change? N.T. Wright suggests that it's because what John wants to do is to help us. He wants to evoke a passage from the prophet Zephaniah, where we won't, we won't find it, where Zephaniah is talking about, the passage goes like this, do not fear. The Lord your God is in your midst. 
And that what Zephaniah is doing, he's taking that phrase, do not be afraid, do not fear, from Zephaniah and using it here because John wants us to grasp what? From Zephaniah? From oh, Zephaniah. Okay. From Zephaniah. Not Zechariah, Zephaniah. Zephaniah. You kind of wish the names were more different, don't you? Yes. Yeah, pass, it's just a little passage from Zephaniah. But of course, you know, for us, we don't, what do we know about the writings of Zephaniah? <laughs> do we even know there is a book of Zephaniah? No. But for these people, that's their whole library. That's what they have grown up with their whole life. And 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 I I think Ed he rides on to something here that that what John does is he wants to call on this sort of evoke this this bit from Zephaniah about don't be afraid. The Lord your God is in your midst because who is actually riding into Jerusalem that day? It's Jesus from Nazareth. It is Jesus the Messiah. But what is he also? What is he beyond being the Messiah? He's God. He's God. Exactly. He's God riding into Jerusalem. He's God returning to Zion. He's God in their midst. Right? So, again, I, I, I think he writes on to something here because of how John writes his gospel. How does he begin it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he wants to help us grasp As the Jews came, as the disciples came to grasp later, as the Jews came, well, as Jesus' followers came to grasp, that when he rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday, yes, he was riding in as Messiah, with every symbol of Messiahship around himself that, he, that one could find. He was wrapped, there's no, there's no hiding anymore. There's no, oh, it's not yet my hour. My time has not come. That's all past. Now everybody sees what he's claiming. He's riding in in such a way that he is claiming to be Messiah. But that's not the whole story. There's more to the story. He is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, riding into Jerusalem in an odd in the worldly ways, in odd triumph. In triumph, yes, but not triumph the way the world typically counts these things, counts these things right? So, so, verse 15, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. And for the Jews of Jesus' day, if they really put these pieces together, as some surely did, they knew that there was to be no king but whom? But God. They go all the way back to the beginning of their story during the time of the judges and all the rest of it. Who was the king of Israel? Yahweh was the king of Israel. It was only when they made the mistake of demanding a human king that things really began to fall apart. Well, I guess it had fallen apart in the time of the judges even, but they wanted a, they wanted a human king like everybody else wanted in the book of Samuel. But when they got it right, God was to be their king. Not Caesar, God. So, 
We'll see in a moment. So let, let's just read on. Because Did, you, can I just ask you real quick? Yeah. Lynn, Lynn Lawton was wondering, what was that Zephaniah? Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, Lynn. I can't remember the verse number. It's just a, it's just a small bit. Look in Zephaniah 3 and see if you can, you'll, you'll spot the do not be afraid, do not fear moment. The Lord your God is in your midst, roughly, something like that. The numbers don't always stay in my brain. So, now, you're probably saying, well, does everybody put all this together? The answer to that is no. no. <laughs> <laughs> and John gets that. John understands that, no, they didn't really get all of this that we're talking about right here. He wants you and me to get it. 2,000 years later, he wants his readers to get it late in the first century and into the second century, right? So look at verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, which means what? After he was resurrected. Yeah, crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven. Only after it was shown to everybody who Jesus really was in that way and they began to remember Jesus did things begin to fall into place and that's how I that's how I see this happening so this and I think this is true for the synoptics it's true for John the disciples don't grasp everything that's happening how could they really be expected to grasp that this man they walked beside for three years was somebody they should be worshiping as they had ever only worshiped the Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're asking too much of them if you think they should understand that, if they should get it. Of course they didn't get it. Of course they didn't get it. You, if we were there, we wouldn't get it if we were put in their shoes. But after Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and then ascended to the Father, then they would begin to put it together. And they would, I could just see him sitting around and talking. Do you remember when Jesus did this? Do you remember when he said this? I think I now get what he meant. And so in these early years, these really immediate years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, they begin to put things together. And so very, very early, they find themselves speaking of Jesus as they had only ever spoken of Yahweh, and they worship Jesus as they had only ever worshiped Yahweh. That's the transformation that happens. But it doesn't happen on that Sunday. That's what we need to, to be willing to admit. Of course, it doesn't happen on that Sunday. And John is straightforward, telling us, you know, because he's one of the disciples, right? I think so. I think he's the young, the young John. And first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Only after did they put things, did they begin to put the pieces? Uh, 
of the puzzle together. Right? You can imagine what they did with Isaiah 53. Wow. Wow. How they reflected upon that as they as time began to pass and they remembered Jesus. I have a great book on my shelf called, I think it's called Remembering Jesus, talking about the way um, these writings came to be and the way things were put together. Because nobody's walking around with steno pads. Steno pads? <laughs> <laughs> what the heck's a steno pad? I don't know. With right. cell phones maybe recording. <laughs> <laughs> yes, nobody's walking around recording things on cell phones. Or writing them down on steno pads. That oh, shows. I know these... right now Lauren is saying, what is he talking about? Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> steno pads. You get the drift, right? So the Gospels and, and other writings about Jesus, which I think um, existed, but which we don't have, which were incorporated some portion all into the Gospels, that's how they had to come to be. They came out of the remembering about Jesus. And um, and in that remem remembering, they were guided by the Holy Spirit. Right? That has to be part of what happens on Pentecost. Is that their remembering is, is, is in part shaped by God. And so you end up with, as Paul says, these God, well, he's talking of the Old Testament, but the Christians applied it to the New Testament as well. These God-breathed um, uh, scriptures, these God-breathed stories, um, true stories, but told, but different portraits of Jesus. So, I see Lauren typed the long... Yeah, she's she's endorsing what I'm saying here. So <laughs> she used to carry Lauren used to carry an olive green steno pad to classes in my backpack in the fourth grade. Of course, Lauren did. <laughs> I should have known. Of course, she did. Had the most meticulous notes in there. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that you know that. That's just how it came to be. And if you're ever if you're ever troubled by it, you want to imagine that they had a perfect memory of everything that Jesus ever said. Well, just just read, just read. Come back and read verse 15, sixteen here, and just remind yourself that that the disciple they didn't get it all. Can you have a question there from Mona also? Okay. This discussion on whether or not the disciples knew they were walking with the Lord. Have there been prophets in the last 200 years that we humans did not realize who they were? Well, okay, so so the question is, I'm sure that there are people who have been very godly that I didn't really appreciate their, their godliness, but I don't think we should equate it with what happens um, in Jesus or even leading up to Jesus because the climax of the story is Jesus. There isn't, there, there isn't a need for a prophet of old after Jesus. 
rather than sending like the prophets of old, like Elijah's or somebody to us, what has God done? God sent his Holy Spirit to form the church in 2,000 years ago, six weeks after Jesus' um, death and resurrection. He, he sent his, the Holy Spirit arrived to, to form the church and to, and to dwell within the body of believers and to dwell in each believer. So, so things change in Jesus. How could I put this? The mechanisms, mechanisms of the Old Testament are not the mechanisms after Jesus. The mission is different, right? Jesus has rescued humanity. God so loved the world that he gave, both past tense, that he gave his only son, right? That's happened 2,000 years ago. Our task is, is different than the prophets. Our task is twofold. We are to be the witnesses to Jesus, book of Acts, to make disciples, teaching, baptizing, to make disciples of all nations. So the church is given its own tasks. So it's it's there's the there's the before Jesus part and there's the after Jesus part and they're not the same. So do I think that there are prophets like prophets of old that were lived and worked among us that we didn't know? I would say no. Are there godly people who have been unappreciated in our yes. Have there been Yes. Like Billy Graham, for instance. Maybe, so. maybe, or go back in time, maybe others. But it's not the same because we live on the other side of Jesus from Elijah and Elisha and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Habakkuk and, and Micah and Malachi and the rest. They had their work. Our work is not their work. Our work is a different work. So as soon as Jesus died then and gave the Great Commission, you know, when he came back after he was resurrected to his disciples. Right. That's when it, it became, you weren't a prophet anymore when you were about preaching about Jesus. You were more an evangelist. Well, well, Paul would use the word prophecy in his letters to talk about um, uh, uh, people who would, who would bring the word of God, okay? But... Paul would Paul would not use it with respect to say this is like Elijah because everything had changed. Right. It's just one of the gifts of prophet or teacher or or evangelist or all the other gifts that he talks about. Okay, but it's not like it can't be like Elijah, right? Because Elijah had his job to do. Right. We're post Jesus. Yes. We're not. We're not really post Jesus. Right, I shouldn't right. put it that way. Right, take. I'll. I'll take my words back because Jesus lives. We are blessed to live at a time when the kingdom of God has come already, but not yet. When God's, as Paul puts it in Titus, when God's salvation has been offered to all people. Right. Yes. Um, after Jesus's death and, and resurrection, been there for almost two thousand years. Almost two thousand years. The church is two thousand years old. That's why Pentecost is so important, and we neglect Pentecost Sunday. Really, churches tend to. 
Sanchez done a better job, yes. I think. But but it's easy to to neglect Pentecost Sunday because Pentecost, the recounted in the at the beginning of the book book of Acts, is when the church the body of Christ is formed and empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, not only is the body of Christ empowered by God's Holy Spirit, sort of corporately, but we as individual believers are temples of God. We are God's Spirit. God's presence dwells in each of us. That's, that's all new because before Jesus, where did, where did God's presence reside? In a temple of marble. In Jerusalem, right. and now Paul writes in First Corinthians. Now we, as individuals, we are those temples. It's kind of mind blowing, right? So, anyway, let's see if there's any follow up here. Ah, okay, Mona. Well, I'm glad that's a little helpful. It's just, it's kind of easy to see. I like graphs. And it's easy to see it all on this smooth little upward line. Because that's how we experience lots of things, okay? It's a smooth little upward line. But that's not it. Everything changed 2,000 years ago. Everything changed 2,000 years ago. What, what, what Christians, the intramural argument Christians have amongst ourselves is whether or not there are gifts of the spirit that have given to the church in the first century that have lived on such as speaking in tongues and that sort of thing have those lived on for the last 2000 years or did they basically end at the end of the first century when the basic work of forming the church was done and christian it's just it's an intramural argument among christians you know, there are Christians who believe in the speaking of tongues. There are Christians who believe that that ended a long time ago. And we all live together in one big tent, happy, happy, happy as can be. So, all right, good stuff. I just love verse 16 because it's just so real. Of course, they did, didn't understand all this. And verse 17 onward is real. Now the crowd that was with Jesus... Okay, so let me pause. Anything else about Palm Sunday? It's really a very short short story, right? I mean, it's he rides in in triumph. Uh, God's triumph. <laughs> Not the world's triumph. God's triumph. He rides in as Messiah. Wrapping around himself all the symbols of Messiahship. That's what you need to get. Wouldn't you like to wonder, though, like those that weren't waving palms and throwing down their cloaks for Jesus, they must have thought these people were nuts. The ones who well, didn't believe can... who Jesus was at all. I mean, they they had to think, what the heck? He, right. And he had been such a controversial figure, yes. right? Go back right. to John 10 where, you know, they're shaking a fist at Jesus saying, you know, you're not... We're not mad at you because of what you've done, but you're making yourself out to be God, right? So what are they? What's it? so? Yeah, yeah. But clearly, John and the Synoptic writers they are focus on Palm Sunday so that you and I grasp that now the time has come, the hour has come, 
Jesus is not being <laughs> secretive or coy. He is taking every symbol of Messiahship, wrapping himself up in it, and entering into Jerusalem, escorted by the crowd as an arriving king. And who was to be, who's the proper king of Israel? God. No king but God, the bumper stickers would say on the chariots of Jerusalem. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just a big, you know, remember back in John 2, when there, when there was a wedding in Cana, and, and Jesus told his mother, my time has not come. Well, now it has. Now it has. So, anything, Patty? No. Now, the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. You bet that story spread like wildfire. Right? Yes, we know it. And if you go back and look at the story in chapter 11 again, Jesus is very public about it. The crowd goes with him. He prays to God. He says, and he says, you know, I don't need to be doing this, but I want everybody to hear what's going on. Verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign to who he is, went out to meet him. Okay? So there's these signs in John's gospel to who Jesus is. Well, the time of signs has passed. They don't need signposts anymore. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem in triumph. But those who had heard about the raising of, of Lazarus went out to meet Jesus. And so, ha ha, the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. See, that's another great moment of I, I just I just love John's gospel. John is a master of irony. That's another moment of irony. Remember a couple chapters ago when when the high priest stood up and said, "Well, you know, isn't it better?" Fearing that the whole Jesus thing is going to get the Romans all upset and cause trouble and stuff, he says, "Isn't it better that one of us die rather than than the whole nation?" And of course, as Christians, we understand the irony in that. John <laughs> knows we will understand the irony in that, that indeed one did die for the sins of the nation, for the sins of the world. And here, the Pharisees said to one of the, look how the whole world has gone after him. Look at the irony in that, because the whole world will. Right? When Christianity will grow and grow and grow and grow, none of them could possibly have imagined that 300 years later, Caesar himself would pledge allegiance to Jesus. Think about it. From these events, going forward only 300 years, Caesar himself pledges allegiance to Jesus. Indeed, the whole world did go after him. Okay. Verse 20. 
Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. These, are, these were called God-fearers. God-fearers, F-E-A-R. God-fearers, as in understanding the awesomeness of God, right? That's what, that's what it is. And these would be people who had not converted to Judaism, but were drawn to Judaism. They were drawn to the Jewish scriptures. They were drawn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we meet a few in the course of the Gospels who have come to Jerusalem to worship as best they can. They're not. They can't do everything the Jews can do. They haven't decided to convert, right? Um, if they were, if there are men and they were going to convert to Judaism, they would have to be circumcised. But they are, they are Gentiles. They are Gentiles who have been drawn to God and they're curious um, and they're called Greeks, not necessarily because they're from that particular part of the Greco-Roman world, but because Greece, Greek, um, Greek is the, it's, it's the second language, if it's not the first language of everyone. So, so they, are, they are pagans, they haven't converted, but they have come um, to worship at this festival, to participate in this. It, you know, it, it's an amazing thing if you stop to think about it, isn't it, really? Yes. That these pagans who, I always envision them understanding that there's something, there was something wrong with the whole pagan god system of Zeus and all the rest and all the soap operas and myths and stories told. These were people who understood that that can't be that can't be the way. And they heard in the Jews, and in the Jews talk of their God, something different, something powerful, something profound, and they were drawn to it. And so they would travel to Jerusalem for a festival like Passover. Verse 21. So they came to Philip... So some of them know Philip, who was one of the disciples, because they're curious. What are they curious about? They're curious about Jesus. They came to Philip. Huh. Well, Philip is a Greek name. So maybe that's why. Maybe some, someone just knows Philip. I don't know. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. I don't know how many people could know that, but Bethsaida in Galilee is right up there next to the area of the Decapolis, which is the Gentile land on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe that is part of the reason they come to Philip. But in any event, they come to Philip with a request, and they say to him, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. So, um, at Christmas time, we talk about how the wise men, the magi from the east, represent the Gentile world when they come before Mary and her baby and they worship the child. They worship the baby. 
they kneel down and pay homage, is what it says in Matthew. They kneel down and pay homage to the child, to this baby. And because they are Gentiles, they represent the Gentile world. That's why it's called epiphany. It's called about making Jesus manifest to the larger world. Who do these people represent? Who does John want us to grasp that they represent? The Gentiles. Big, John, John is writing in the, let's say the early 90s AD. He, by then he knows full well that most of his fellow Jews rejected Jesus. That the Jesus movement becomes a largely Gentile movement. Not just because there aren't a lot of Jews compared to the number of Gentiles, but because most Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah. So, of course, for John, these God-fearers, these Gentiles, represent represent the world. They represent the mission um, that the disciples will be on. And they say, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew. And Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. I just love the little detail there. <laughs> just this little detail, because the Gospel writer John is in the midst of all this. So Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So, you know, he doesn't really directly address the question, but you'll see. So Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, glory is this public word. It's a social word for everybody to see that Jesus is indeed the Son of Man, the Daniel 7 Son of Man, the one who comes before the throne of the of, of God and has given dominion and power over all God's creation. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus says. Everybody's going to see it. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. A simple little metaphor that speaks to what? To, to Jesus' understanding about where this is leading. This is leading him to that cross. He knows that. He doesn't want it. Nobody would want it. That would be insane. He doesn't want it. But he knows it's coming. And the only way to avoid it is to be unfaithful to the vocation given him by God. So... Yes, yes, he's going to die. But in that death, like a little kernel of wheat that has fallen to the ground and produces a wheat field, it's going to produce many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Um, John, Jesus likes stark contrast. So that's what the love-hate thing is about this This big contrast, light and darkness, love and hate. You can't cling too tightly to this world, to your life in this world, or you will miss what God offers. I think there are people who make, who make that mistake. Lots of people who make that mistake. They see everything in terms of their life right now without any sense 
really that that God is offering them eternity. You know, I I, I think I guess something I keep saying to myself and I would say to others is don't cling too tightly to this life. It's a gift from God. We are meant to enjoy it. I want to live to be a very, very, very old man. And then, I don't know, die in my sleep or something. But we can't cling too tightly because God has offered us eternity. Eternity. And if you're only focused on this life, you can miss it. You can miss it. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, Jesus says. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Right? Um, what are we, as disciples, what are we called to do? What do? We're called to follow Jesus. Jesus says, when he, it's just, it comes from Matthew, but when he gives a great commission in Matthew, um, it is, yes, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, teach them to obey, to follow Jesus, to actually do as Jesus ha has taught us, to actually live that life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then in 27 he says, <clears throat> now my soul is troubled and what shall I say my, of course his soul is troubled he knows where this is going he knows what, he has to of course he does he's they all have a lot of experience with the Romans. They all have a lot of experience with crucifixion. They know what happens to rebel kings or people seen as rebels or the followers of rebel kings and all this stuff. That's why the disciples hide, run and hide when Jesus is arrested and crucified. They're hiding. Why? Because the Romans went around and rounded up the followers of, of crucified rebels. So of course Jesus' soul is troubled. He doesn't want to be, he doesn't want this path. It, it's like Gethsemane. He doesn't want that path. Don't expect him to, and don't take it away from him. Don't say, oh, well, he's God, it doesn't matter. He, he knows, he knows, it's all right, it's all right. No, no. When you do that, you make him not human anymore. He is human. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He could, right? He could bail out on the whole thing, I guess. He says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He, Jesus, will stick with this. He will be true to his vocation. He will be faithful to the work the Father has given him to do. 
all the way to death, even death on a cross, as Paul writes. He will, he will, he will. Does he wish there was another way? Well, of course. Is he... <laughs> He gives voice to it. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Of course he gives voice to it, but no. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name, which is a way of saying, remember, name is, is, a very, is, is speaking of the um, to glorify God's name is to glorify God. So it's like saying, Father, glorify yourself. What's going to happen is glorify God. Be why? Because the world will enable to see the price which God is willing to pay to reconcile humanity to God. The cross is to the glory of God because that is the price that God was willing to pay to reconcile humanity to God. It's why Paul will say to, you know, the Christians he's leading, he's pastoring, he'll say to them, you were bought for a price. Your body is not your own. You were bought for a price. What a terrible price it is. The crucifixion and death of this innocent man. It's easy to say, to utter the words, God loves the world. It's quite another thing to know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? This is... Jesus is going to bear this price. The Father is going to bear this price for you, for me, for humanity. The salvation that is offered to all people, as Paul writes. Then a voice came from heaven that says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That what is happening here is that Jesus is lifting up. <laughs> lifting up is a phrase that typically refers to crucifixion in the gospel. That Jesus is lifting up God in this. And that will continue The voice came from heaven. I have glorified him. I will glorify it again. This, it's, it's an endorsement, I guess, of Jesus because the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And a heaven comes, voice comes out of the heaven saying, I have glorified and will glorify it again. Some people think it's thunder. Some people think it's the voice of the angels. But it is, it is the voice of the Father. Yes, this is the path. So, I don't know. And then Jesus said, like he did outside the tomb of Lazarus. This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Jesus knows what path he's on. He wants people to understand what path he's on, what he is doing, what this is about, 
how it is that his time has come, his hour has come. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. And now the prince of this world, that's a phrase referring to the devil, will be driven out. That the age of sin and death and Satan is going to be, is going to be, is, is coming to an end. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, there's that phrase, it refers to crucifixion, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You know, it's a, um, verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now that doesn't take any deep, you know, godly inspiration to understand that when Jesus, Jesus has just presented himself as king, Messiah, the anointed one, right? So it doesn't take, it, it doesn't take any supernatural powers to understand that in the eyes of the Romans, that's a crucifiable offense. Because crucifixion is public. Crucifixion is supposed to be an example. Don't, don't, don't you think about rebelling against Rome. Don't you think about embracing some, some would-be king. Or this is going to be what happens. You're going to suffer the worst death imaginable. The worst death we can cook up. But Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, it will draw all people to me, to myself. It is it's a hard thing for us to, I think it's a hard thing for Christians to really grasp that the glory of God is revealed on the cross. The resurrection is the proof, but the glory of God is revealed in Jesus' willingness to be crucified rather than run away. And the willingness of the Father to allow his Son to be crucified when he could put a stop to it any moment. But Jesus would be faithful. He would be a faithful Jew, loving God, loving others, all the way to the end. He wouldn't be like the world like like we tend to be when the going gets bad we just kind of bail or turn away or shrink away that's not going to be what jesus does so i think we're going to end it right for today right there um you know jesus is going to do a lot of speaking um in these coming chapters um, you're not, it's not like the synoptics. You don't get all the confrontations with the Pharisees and all that kind of stuff. Um, John is going to pretty quickly bring us right to um, the Last Supper. And even there, it's different because you get the washing of the feet rather than the, the cup and the, and the blood. But uh, Jesus himself really is setting the stage for what is going to happen. So, yeah. Yeah, we we do need to end this. So we'll we'll stop right there. We'll come back. We'll pick it up right there around verse thirty-four or so, something like that. Mm -hmm. Right there. Do I have that right? 
sort of. Yeah, you do. Okay. Look at us. We're right there. In fact, we can do it this way. We can, re so, we can, we can feature you. I don't want to be featured. How's this? How's this? <laughs> oh, gosh. Here's no. my ear. There's Patty and Scott's ear. Stop. Go back. Okay. <laughs> All righty. Okay. I know we'll finish this next week. This part of the story. Yeah. 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 We will. Please join me as we close in prayers, and hopefully you will get a time to enjoy a little bit of this beautiful day outside today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this class. We thank you, God, for this time that we take each week, each Tuesday. We take a little more than an hour out of our life to study in depth your scripture. We thank you for Scott's teaching today. And we thank you, God, for your word. And we thank John for putting it in such a way that speaks to us and speaks clearly of the, the difference. It's the light or the dark and which path are you going to choose. We pray, God, that you would hold us all close this day. We know, Lord, that there are many prayers in this group uh, today. We, we pray, God, for each person, their family, their friends, God, that you would hold each person close. We pray, God, for good health. We pray, God, you'd keep us safe. We pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment every day to help us make decisions big and small. I uh, pray for a friend of ours who was having surgery done this morning, Lord, that everything is going well with that. And I pray also for personally for a family member who had some tests this morning, and we're praying that those results will all come back very good. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. We lift up all these prayers to you today, and we pray it all in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody, Bye, and have a great have a great week. Have a great week.